Good morning, Evergreen. If you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. We're back in Genesis off of our unplanned delay last week. We're in Genesis chapter 2 starting at verse 18 and we're going to be reading till the end of the chapter. And just to let you guys know, I'm just as excited as you are. Maybe, maybe not just as excited, but I like Christmas a lot. I really enjoy it. I'm actually wearing almost a red tie. I reserve the red tie that Michael's wearing till next week. Uh, Christmas is a wonderful season to reflect on the fact of the incarnation, what God has done, the steps that God went to to save sinners. But this morning, what we're going to be contemplating is maybe something that's personally for us, either the greatest source of earthly joy or maybe even the source of greatest pain in our lives. And that's the topic of marriage and how God made it good in the beginning. And even from Robert's reading, what we saw is that we see in marriage, in God's original design, not just something that's going to give us instruction for life and daily living, but it's also going to show us what Christ's love for us looks like. What does it mean that Jesus loves us? That's a profound thing to contemplate, and that's the goal for this morning. Let us read Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the earth, of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, from the man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. When we start the history in reading through in Genesis, a lot of people talk about the artistic flourishes in Genesis chapter 1. Seeing the style and seeing how God did things in such a way as to communicate how we are to live. Making the heavens and the earth and everything in them in six days. 
to be a pattern for us. And then resting on one day to once again be a pattern for us. But if I had to guess between Genesis 1 and 2, which one has more artwork in it? Which one seems to be more organized in an artistic display? I'd actually point to Genesis chapter 2. God makes the man out of the dirt, forms him as clay, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. He places him in a garden that's more beautiful than anything you can possibly even conceive. And then here in our text, when he puts a parade of animals in front of Adam, he makes woman out of the rib of man, putting him into sleep. What we see here is a picture. And this should be true whenever we're reading Bible stories. They are histories. They record true events as they happen in the order that they happened. But they are stories. They're narratives. Maybe if you like to, don't like the fictional nuance that sometimes stories can convey. They're historical narratives. And you know what the true element of a good story is? A good story shows not tells. This is one of my big beefs with a lot of cheesy movies. One of my biggest criticisms is that oftentimes people in a certain situation where a loved one is leaving them, they'll say, I am so sad. Instead of letting the person's actual response in the film convey that she said, because people in real life don't just let out their emotions, say, you know what, I'm really angry right now, I'm really sad right now. They don't always tell you what you're feeling. We should be able to watch it, just like in a movie, we should be able to see the scene itself and see the meaning that's communicated through the actual picture. And that's what we're given in this text. And we're really shown two different things. And then we are told explicitly what we need to know. And the substance of it all is about marriage. The goodness of marriage as God originally conceived it. And after looking at that, we'll see why Paul chooses marriage as his analogy to show and picture Christ's love for his bride, the church. So if I was to begin to show you the goodness of marriage as God originally created it. The first thing we have in this picture is of something that's not good. Verse 18, after God made Adam, he said, it is not good that man should be alone. Isn't that an amazing thing? God made a perfect man living in a perfect environment made him complete, or seemingly so. He has a perfect relationship with God as his father. And yet God says and looks at his situation that there's something not good. And we're given this picture that shows that he's not good. God understands that he's not good. God knows that he's going to make Eve for him. 
But we see in this first picture that this lonely man doesn't know he's lonely until he has a parade of animals put out in front of him. And he does part of his job. His job is naming the creatures. He's been given dominion and authority over them. And he has paraded in front of him every kind of creature. And he himself comes to the same conclusion God had. Which is he, that he is alone. This kind of undercuts the way we think about the world. We tend to think of ourselves as individuals. And only think of ourselves in our individual relationships. But God here does not just make here a man and a woman and then afterwards independently arrange them and set them up to be together. Instead, God makes Adam as a male, yes, but he's not just a male for very long. Soon he becomes a husband before day one is even over of his existence. And for his wife... She's created female, but she's created as a wife for Adam from the very beginning. This is what we mean when we look at marriage as the most foundational institution of society. God built it into our very being to be social beings. To be beings who have relationships with other people. Not as lone individuals. I think this is where part of our problem and part of our confusion comes in when people try to think of male and female. Try to come up with a definition in isolation from the other. When part of our inherent male and femaleness was created in relation to one another. And what this also does, when we define it in this way, we realize that the world's definition of what it means to be male or female are totally off base. What do you think of when you think of a man's man? Do you have the picture of someone like a John Wayne? Someone who can build a house with his own two hands? Someone who has athletic performance and prowess that he dominates the competition. Well, all those things might be true and good, and I don't have a problem with John Wayne's and tough guys. That's not what we're given in this text. Adam, as a man, does not find his manhood in his own individual identity quest. I have not read this book, but some of you may, ha may have. When you're looking at a picture, you have to be very careful to see how the author states his points and what details he puts in and what details he leaves out. And sometimes when we're looking at the picture, we accidentally slip things into it or misread it. One person who I thought saw do this is John Eldridge in his book, Wild at Heart. He points out that Eve was created within the lush, beautiful garden, but Adam was created outside the garden, in the wilderness. 
And he reasons that if God put man into the garden, then he must have been made outside of the garden. Which, sure, that could be true. But what he gets to, and the conclusion he gets, is that the core of man's identity as being made in the wilderness is that he is undomesticated. That he's supposed to have his pursuits outside of the home. When that's not the way God made Adam. It's actually the exact opposite. The significance is not that he was made in the wilderness, but that he was placed in the garden to work it and to keep it. And when he didn't have a relationship with a wife, he saw that it was something that's not good. His relationship and identity is not found outside of the home, outside in some sort of selfish, self-serving pursuits. It's actually found within the home. Loving his wife, being a godly father, working hard to provide for his family. This is what a godly man looks like. It's a man of character and of respect. He might be able to build his home, but that's not the point. And it's not the point that we see in Adam. Adam was given a command. Do not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He's the one who's going to be held responsible for the command. Which is ultimately obedience to God. The thing he needs is a helper. And a helper who's fit to him. What we have in this first point here, in the first fill in the blank, is a companionship between the husband and the wife. What is being solved for here is Adam's loneliness. But the reason why the word companion is probably not here is because of the particular task that he has been given. That he's working and cultivating, sure, protecting the garden, yes, but also having a relationship and being given a command that he is to obey God. And this is where we start to see the nature of woman. In contrast, we see Adam is made not as a complete individual, but as incomplete apart from his relationships. What Eve is going to be is exactly what God intends her to be. When God says in verse 18, I will make a helper fit for him. So at this point, we need to think about what is a helper? And usually we think of it in terms of derogatory, lowly service. The help around the house being a derogatory term. But we should be clear here that we don't want the, the Bible to be informed by our stereotypes of men and women. Things get awry pretty quickly when we let that happen. A helper, as it's used throughout Scripture, is a term that's mostly used of God himself. Think of Exodus chapter 18, verse 4. You probably haven't recognized that, and I wouldn't have remembered what that is either. 
we see that Moses names his two ch children. One is Gershom, and the other one is named Eliezer. And in my ESV, it has a helpful parenthesis of where, why Moses named his son Eliezer. He named him Eliezer because my God is my help. Referring to Pharaoh and how God had saved him from Pharaoh. They refers to God as his help, his helper. Eliezer. Eli means my God. Azer means help. This is what Eve is to be to her husband. His help, his strength. Yes, God has created an authority structure within the confines of marriage. But it's not a demeaning task to be the help, because that's what God is. Think of a teacher. Does a teacher help their students... By knowing less than them? No, actually being a teacher, if you're going to help a student to learn, you actually need to know more than them. Help, scripturally understood, comes from a position of strength. It is other-oriented. You're helping someone else, serving someone else. But it's done from a position of strength. And that's why it's used of God throughout Scripture, because our only hope in life and death is that we have a helper, the Lord, our God. We have a true companion. And the reason why I chose the word companion is for that second word, that God is going to make a helper fit for Adam. It's the word there, it's literally as opposite to himself. It's someone who's standing in front of him, his correspondence, his equal is really the kind of the root of his term, of this term. And it makes sense why he looks throughout the creation and sees no helper fit for him because he doesn't see any animal that is his equal. That's what Adam needs. He needs a helper who's strong and who is just as valuable and just as made in the image of God as himself. We don't just get confused about what men are and what women are. We get confused about what our pets are and what their role is to be in our lives. And I'm not dissing if you count them as a family member. We, it's great to love our pets. But your pets do not replace your spouse and your pets do not replace your children because they're not made in the image of God. This, we have a popular saying, don't we, that dog is man's best friend? The Bible says that's not true because when, the, when Adam called out to dogs included, you know what a dog never did? The dog never called back to him. Even though we kind of get confused at that with barks. Those barks are not their voice in the sense of not words. They're, not, they're communicating to you through a different language. While we might be close, while we might have great relationships with them, and we might even look forward to heaven in which those relationships between man and animal and that peace will be restored, guess what? 
It will never be the same as a relationship that you have with another human being. This is why Adam was lonely. In the New Testament, where we're told in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, that we are to commanded as Christians to hold marriage in honor among all of us and let marriage be undefiled. We're told that, yes, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, but, you know, just two verses later in verse 6, we're told that God will never leave or forsake us and that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear This is bigger than just our relationships with other people. But before we move on to that, there's a companionship that we all need in other human beings, but there's also an intimacy that we see in this. And we see the intimacy between husband and wife. There's a second picture here that starts in verse 21. When after Adam sees the problem, God is the one who solves it. And when God solves it, he does a little antiseptic, not antiseptic, anesthetic. It's a little bit different. He does anesthesia on him. He puts Adam to sleep. He takes the rib out of him. He crafts and forms a woman. And what does he do with this woman? But he takes him, takes this woman and brings him to the man. Parades her out in front of him just like he had done with all the animals. And Adam had a totally different response. What we have here is the picture of a father bringing a bride to the groom. It's beautiful language. We see that from the fact that the fact that he took one of Adam's ribs and placed its flesh over it. There's a whole old Hebrew adage that is good that it bears repeating. It's probably not the main point of this text, though. Looking at the path of what is included in this picture, this old Hebrew adage says, God chose to make Eve from the rib of man. He did not take her from Adam's head that she should rule over him. He did not take her from his foot that he should trample upon her, but from the rib that she might protect his heart. The wife is meant to be his helper, not just in the task of obedience to God, or really the text of obedience to God in every sphere of life. She does help him in the task of procreation. She does help him in the task of being his companion and friend. But the word helper appeals to every facet of life and cannot be limited to any one sphere. But probably the main point here is to understand that this rib... The reason why it's translated rib is because Adam's response is that this woman was taken bone from his bone and flesh from his flesh. But it's just the word for side. It's as God reached into his side and pulled out 
the side of him and crafted and shaped it into a woman. And that word for crafted and shaped is not the same word that's used of what happened to Adam out of dirt. There, with Adam, it's as a potter shaping into a vessel out of the dirt. But here, this is actually a term used normally for decoration. When they craft the jewels of the temple to beautify it. That God is creating and crafting something especially for Adam himself. And Adam sees the point. And when she's brought to him as God her father brought it to the groom. His response is, and I think the main point of why God is bringing out this bone out of his side. He says, at this at last, or this time, after seeing the parade at the final, the end of it, he says, this time is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. We actually have this same kind of meaning in our colloquial terms when we talk about our flesh and blood. When we talk about someone who's our own flesh and blood, we're talking about family, kinship. And this was something that was literally true of Adam and Eve. They were, in the biblical term for family, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is why we're, we're seeing how families are referred to this, whether it's Jacob and Laban are referred to in Genesis 29 as bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Or in Judges chapter 9, that we see an appeal to his brother saying, remember that I'm your bone and your flesh. David appeals to the Israelites and says, you are my very bone and my flesh. He's communicating a kinship that's real between them. And God is doing this to show the closeness of them that the husband and the wife are one flesh. They have unity. Why would God reveal this in this picture? Well, what is, was literally true of Adam and Eve is legally true for you and me. While it was a literal truth for Adam and Eve that they were one flesh literally, they were literally flesh and blood, now husband and wife, we have a legal reality. And the legal one fleshness between a husband and wife when they make vows before God is just as real. Because it's based on this prototype. And it's an intimate love. At last, bone of my bones, what do you think of when you think of your family? You think of this unadulterated, untampered with love for someone. For a parent to their child, knowing that they're your child, whether it's by adoption or whether it's by biological means, either way, when that child is born, you know nothing can separate you. That you love that child, no matter what they do, unconditionally. Or at least that's the way it's supposed to be. This is the kind of love and intimacy that's meant to be between a husband and wife. And because it's a re legal reality, we often don't treat it that way. 
But God calls us to love our spouse in that way. And that love throughout Scripture is not something that's against authority. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're told the nature that there is an authority between husband and wife. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 1 says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if, you, even if some do not obey the word, that is the gospel, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful conduct, your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be hidden, be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, and you do good, and do not fear that anything, anything that is frightening. And then he says in verse 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. it take another sermon to unpack all of that. But that's about the clearest text that I can find that explicitly makes clear that there is a relationship, there's a structure to this legal reality of husband and wife and one of submission and authority. But what kind of authority is it? And what kind of submission? There's limits to it. The submission is only to their own husbands. That occurs whether it's in the passage Robert read in Ephesians chapter 5 or 1 Peter chapter 3 or even in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Wherever it comes up, it's the command for wives to submit to their own husbands. This is where our, or the biblically informed lack of individualism should help us. Because women are called to submit to all men just as much as men are called to love all women. It's not the case. This is a legal bound relationship where there is structure to it. Malachi chapter 2 verse 14 calls the love of a man to his wife a covenant that he made with her. Adam was given responsibilities to guard and protect. And when he was given a wife, that became part of the thing that he was to guard and protect. Adam had responsibilities. And responsibilities correlate with authority. And maybe the second point here is just as submission and authority does not extend to everyone, to every female and to every male... Neither is the authority the same in every single context. We're told to submit to our governments in Romans 13, and I hope you don't submit to your government the same way you submit to God and to your spouse. Children are told to submit 
to their parents. I really hope the submission in your marriage does not look like the submission of a child to their parents because children are supposed to submit equally to both parents in that authority structure. The authority structure is real. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 grounds it in the creation details that Adam was made first, not Eve. That Eve was made from Adam and for Adam. He has then an authority in that relationship. But that authority is limited. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says that authority, first, if anyone's commanding you to sin, obey God rather than man, no matter who the man is. But also, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 that wives have authority over their husbands' bodies for their service, and men have authority over their wives' body for their service. That there is to be a mutual sort of authority that's happening within the context of a marriage that is not just unlimited. But my point here is to say that there is a structure of authority. But it is not authority that is stereotypical of the world. Just like women aren't defined by the stereotypes of the world and men aren't defined by the stereotypes of the world, neither is marriage and neither is authority. For everywhere we see authority given in the Bible, we see that it's supposed to be leveraged for love's sake. It's supposed, this authority is supposed to be leveraged for love's sake, which means that this authority, rather than being contrary to our intimacy with our spouse, should be the very means by which we have intimacy with our spouse. That's why the command to husbands universally throughout Scripture, to wives is to submit to your husbands, but to husbands is to love your wives. Malachi chapter 2 makes this clear. When God says, the Lord was witness between you and your wife, the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion, your wife by covenant. This is God, the context of God condemning divorce among the Israelites in Malachi. God says, what was the one God seeking? First from their marriages, godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. God is using this intimacy between husband and wife to foster godly children, to be a godly model of love between one another. But more than that, it says in verse 16 of Malachi chapter 2, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. God says that he hates divorce. And what does this look like? The opposite of, God, of a man having authority over his wife and loving her is divorcing her. Man is to love the wife as he loves his own body. Why? Because as Ephesians 5 told us, Christ loved his own body, the church, and died for her. It's a legal reality. God made the two one 
flesh in marriage. We are to love our spouse. That's what the man is called to do. If you want to be a manly man, love your wife self-sacrificially. Die to yourself and live to serve her needs. This is not the kind of authority that the world knows. And it's not the kind of authority that our children will see in the world unless we demonstrate it for them. And this leads pretty naturally into the last point. We see the goodness of marriage in the companionship. We see the goodness of marriage in the intimacy. And we see goodness of marriage in the commitment itself. So far, this story has been a lot of show and no tell, but here the story pauses to tell us something very important. Verse 24, Therefore the man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And in case you didn't get the point of Moses' pause comment, Matthew chapter 9 Verse five, verse six rather says, summarizes that verse and says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Jesus' argument against divorce and letting any reason for divorce besides uh, adultery and violating that covenant that they have together. They asked the question originally, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is there such a thing in the Bible as no-fault divorce? Is there such a definition in the Bible for divorce because love has fallen out of the relationship? No. Why? Well, first of all, God calls husbands and wives to love each other. You don't feel love towards your spouse? The Bible says, love your wife. You tell me, I don't consider my wife my friend or my companion. I consider her my enemy. What does the Bible call us to do? To love our enemies. You can't get out of it. The command is to love one another. Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments in this. Love God with all you are, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is to be seen in our marriages and all of life. But if we don't see it in our marriages, once again, if we don't love our flesh and blood, what does that say about us? What he's calling people to is something that God has witnessed. What makes this a legal reality? You know, in our country, the definition has been expanded. It has been changed. God defined marriage as monogamous, between one man, one woman, heterosexual, between only a man and a wife, for the ends that he designed it. It's a legal reality. Our world has changed that definition to include other forms, other relationships. But the reason why it's not the reason why 
that doesn't actually change the definition of marriage is because marriage is more than simply a piece of paper. It's a vow we make to one another voluntarily, yes. But it's a vow which God witnesses. It's an institution which God made. And he made it for our good. And we are bound to our, the wife of our youth as long as we are alive, as Romans chapter 7 verse tells us. This is natural relationships. Why does Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 then pick up on this picture to picture Christ's love for his church? Let's think of those three words. Companionship, intimacy, and commitment. Why did Jesus become a man? He took on a like nature to ours. He humbled himself to the form of a servant just like me and you. Why? To save us. He became like us. The book of Hebrews said that when he took on our human nature, he became our sympathetic high priest. Jesus became a friend of sinners, and he saved sinners who would become his own flesh and blood, not by natural birth, but by adoption. Really part of his family, really his true brothers, his true sisters. That's an amazing thing. I think that might help us to speak too strongly about the difference between men and women, won't it? Jesus took on the nature of a male. Can he, if we speak of women as a separate species than men, what are we communicating? When we say that women are a mystery that we cannot possibly understand. I get it. Men and women are different. But we're actually the same species. We're actually one Marriage did not solve the problem of oneness and sense of species because we are already one kind. Image bearers. This text actually focuses on Adam's equality with Eve. The fact that she's the same. His counterpart. His correspondence. When Jesus took on human nature, even though it was as a male... He took on a human experience which every human being can relate to. So what does it look like, the calling for the Christian to look like Christ? It looks like being a true and godly human being. It's the same calling for everyone. And even for Adam and Eve, they had one calling which Eve was to be Adam's help in, which was obeying God. But they had the same task, to obey God. God. Jesus is not only our companion, but he's also our intimate love. This is why when Paul talks about in Ephesians 5 about the love of Christ, he talks about the love for his own flesh, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, that the church is his bride. Jesus Christ came and died because he loved sinners. 
His father sent his, the father sent his son because he loved sinners and wanted to save them to himself. The Holy Spirit gives us life and gives us eyes to see and ears to hear. Why? Once again, because he loves sinners. The love that's supposed to and pictured in the beginning between husband and wife, that kind of love is the love that Jesus has for his church. Jesus' love for us is intimate. He is our companion and friend, and he is committed to our salvation. How wonderful news is it that when we make our vows, when we proclaim our faith in Christ, that the picture we're given is a marriage to God, that we are united to the Son, we are in union with him, that every time the... the Christian is thought of in the New Testament, it speaks of us being in Christ, under his authority as his bride, submitting to his leadership, but in him. And he's committed to us. And he will never leave, never forsake us. He will never divorce us. It's at this point that we see this is a radically different picture not just to what we see in the, from the beginning, but it's a radically, radically different picture than we see in our own selves, in our own marriages. We haven't loved each other as we ought. Fathers haven't loved their children as they ought. Mothers have not loved their children as they ought. Husbands and wives do not love each other as they ought. As they ought. And we see that in the fact that we're not naked and unashamed in the garden. But our hope is not to be found that our lives perfectly image what Christ would want them to be. And where our, our marriages fall short, we're reminded that this once again is another law, a good thing that God calls us to, but is not our hope in salvation. It's not our hope in life and death. It's that Jesus... Our Savior, our compassionate, intimate, committed friend has achieved salvation for us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we belong to you. We are thankful that you've committed and you've made us not just in relationship with others, but in relationship with yourself. And Lord, may that bring joy to our lives. Lord, we do pray for the marriages in our church and in our nation. That they would seek to read the scriptures to see the goodness of marriage. To see the goodness of our companionship. And that you would foster in our lives the heart that wants to show love and respect towards our spouse. To make that companionship thriving. That we would seek to love our spouse with self-sacrificial love both dying to our own self-serving attitudes and dying to our own desires for how we would want to lead our own lives. And Lord, may our commitment to our marriages be strong. And may we not leave or forsake the, life, the wife of our youth. But in all these things, may we not put our hope in our marriages or in any other good gift of yours but may we only put our hope in Jesus Christ 
and ultimately what his marriage to us has achieved, which is eternal life to us. And may anyone in this room who does not know Jesus, who does not know Jesus as the lover of their soul, may they turn to Christ. May they know that Christ, our God, does not turn away any sinner, but fully forgives them all. And Lord, may they turn to you in repentance and faith this morning, this day. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me, let us sing our God's praises in response to his word.